Again, I'm, pa I'm Pastor Dan Broadwater, and uh, it's great to be here again. It's been a while since I've been here, and that was a little risky what you did, kind of greeting each other, but many of you were protected with your masks. These are strange times we're living in. And, uh, but not so strange was this great idea that you came up with uh, to have a series on things we need to talk about more often. So Joe called me and Pastor Joe, and I said, so give me a few days to think about that if you want me to say something. But, so I was trying to think of something that I had, hadn't really thought much about, but was in the scripture. So I called him back and I said, well, why don't we do something on this, the fear of the Lord. Uh, I don't know if you're like me. I don't know if you, when's the last time you heard a sermon on the fear of the Lord? When's the last time you used that phrase in your conversation with anybody? When's the last time that you uh, saw it somewhere in print? I was curious about that question, and my son, who writes for the Times, uh, I, I did a research, because they, uh, they do uh, keep great archives. So I typed in the fear of the Lord in the New York Times, and uh, the most recent article was 1951 that mentioned it in their archives, and then, but the, that's 70 years ago. But the one just prior to that was, uh, uh, was written in 1936. And, and it said in there, it's quoting actually a sermon that someone had preached. It said, you know, the, the uh, do, chief duty of Christianity is not just to, or the duty of Christianity is to address issues in our society, but the main issue is to teach the principles of Christ and the old-fashioned idea of walking in the fear of the Lord. That's 85 years ago was old-fashioned. <laughs> Still old-fashioned, out of style today. That language is out of style. I suspect for two Christians, the, uh, the actual fear of the Lord is not. The Bible has a lot to say about it. It's referenced over a hundred times uh, in one form or another, that phrase. And uh, it's interesting how Proverbs puts it. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want to start down the road of being wise, you've got to get your head around this idea and get that somehow into your thinking and life, regardless of whether you're using the, the phrase or not. Now, I want you to notice something there. Uh, when Solomon speaks here uh, about the fear of the Lord from Proverbs, it's not just the fear of any Lord. You notice how it's in all capitals there? Most of your Bibles, the vast majority, uh, you'll find reference often to the Lord in all capitals, and that's for a reason because they're trying to point out, uh, they're trying to preserve and point out a name that's behind that in Hebrew. Uh, and that four-letter word uh, is Yahweh, Yahweh. Uh, it's a name used, I, I like to think of it as God's preferred name. He has many names he likes to be called, but the one that's most frequent is this one, the fear of the Lord. It's used about 5,500 times, more or less, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, it's all capitals, and it distinguishes him from all the other so-called God, so gods of the world. 
Uh, Strong's Bible Dictionary calls it the proper name for the one true God. Uh, Scholars have debated its meaning, but most seem to agree that the idea here is that it's the existing one, uh, the living one, or the one who is and always has been, just the one who's there. You know, that questions with the kids all the time. You ask questions and you, you answer the question. It keeps going back and eventually you get back to God. <laughs> Gets back to God. And it, the word here is, uh, when it says the wisdom begins with fearing the Lord, it's, it's not, Solomon's not referring to Shiva or Brahma or Allah or George Harrison's My Sweet Lord, which is a reference to Krishna. Uh, he's not referring to any of those gods in the land of Canaan, where the Israelites uh, took over uh, that promised land. It's, it's not Chemosh, the national god of the Moabites, and uh, it's not any of those ones. They had dozens of gods there. Gad, who was the god of fortune, and uh, Moloch, the god of fire, etc., etc. So the fear of the Lord begins with, or uh, the wisdom begins with fearing the Lord, that is the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, uh, the God who's given us the Ten Commandments, the Scriptures, and promised us someone to save us from our terrible condition, our sins and the brokenness of this world. Now, this Lord has some, go back here, has some awesome claims. He has some pretty powerful claims, uh, bold statements, we find uh, in Isaiah that uh, it says that I am the Lord, Yahweh, and there is no other. There's no other. It says here that, uh, that men may know from rising to the setting of the sun that there's no one besides me. What he's saying is there are no other gods. There's only one God. You look out into the world. There's one creator, one sustainer, one maker, one person who gives you breath every day, which we sang about earlier, and that's Yahweh. There's no other. These are the claims of Scripture as you think about fearing the Lord and who it is we're supposed to fear or reverence. The idea is there to reverence Him. And in fact, Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, it goes on to say, There is no other God. There never has been. There never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord, all caps. And there is no other Savior. No other way to get out of the broken condition that we're in, according to the claims of the Scripture, as we continue to, uh, as we uh, pursue this idea of fearing uh, the Lord. Let's talk about that idea now. So, I must say that uh, as you study the, the scripture, the fear of the Lord, it's a positive, it's a very positive statement. Usually we're thinking about, oh, fear of the Lord, we're in trouble. Well, you probably are. But if you haven't worked that through and come to grips with it and actually enter into what it means to be a person who fears the, the Creator. Uh, Psalm 128.1 says, you're blessed if you're fearing the Lord. Proverbs 15, 16, it said, better to have a little, just a little in life with the fear of the Lord than to have a lot, than to have a treasure 
with trouble. It's interesting when you see the interaction in the book of Job, which was one of the very early oldest books of the Bible, uh, we see uh, God on a very unusual occasion uh, interacting with Satan, the evil one. Some people don't believe in him, but the Bible clearly says there's an evil one. We don't see him, and he's out there, he's real, and not something you want to be, someone you want to be thinking about very often. Just thinking more about God, you don't have to worry about an evil one, evil one. But in Job 1.8, uh, and I'm reading scripture here, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is uh, no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God <laughs> and turns away from evil. Psalm 25.14 says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. You want God as a friend, and that word there has to do with revealing secrets. You want the God, the universe, to reveal secrets, get up close and have a friendly relationship, then we've got to learn uh, what it means to fear God. And it says he makes known to them his covenant. He makes known to us the deal, the covenant, the deal that he's cut with humanity to bless us. Psalm 103 says, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. His righteousness to their children's children. And then other scriptures, you can look these up on your own. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11. But I want to go on. The early Christians, this is an interesting to note in the scripture as you study, again, I hadn't studied or thought about this, and that's what I've been doing for the last couple of months, <laughs> wrapping my head around it and see what the scripture says about what it means uh, to fear the Lord. Well, it says uh, that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria uh, had peace and was built, being built up, and what were they doing? You can say it. They were walking in the fear of the Lord walking in the fear of the Lord. And the church multiplied. That's what they were doing, the early Christians. That's a positive thing. That's what I'm trying to say here. It's a positive thing. In fact, guess who walked in the fear of the Lord the best? The Messiah. Isaiah 11 says, It was true of God's Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he will delight. He delighted in the fear of the Lord. That's what he lived for, that's what he was happy about. Uh, so it's a very wonderful, positive idea presented to us. But it's scary if you're afraid of God and you're not walking in the fear of the Lord. If you haven't come to grips with that connection with him and settled in to a, a relationship with him through faith. So what does it mean? What does it mean? And uh, I was trying to think of come up with a definition. Most of you who know me, you realize that if I can't reduce something down to a sentence, I'm pretty much confused. And I can't talk about something because it's just, it's just beyond me. I'm kind of like, I get it very concise. And, but it's such a big idea that um, it's hard to get your head around. I did come up with something that hopefully is helpful to us. But as I was looking online, I noticed in, it might have been Wikipedia or somewhere, one of my old seminary professors is quoted there, uh, Robert Strimple. And he says, and you'll see that it's a very full, rich idea of 
uh, he says in this uh, reference to him that the fear of the Lord involves the convergence of convergence of awe, as in awesome, uh, reverence, adoration. It involves honor, worship, confidence. It involves you being thank- thankfulness, uh, love, and yes, fear. So now it's going to be hard to give a sermon, but if that's the topic, we got all that jammed in there. We got all that, but that's all. It's a part of what it means. And you might reduce it even further to awe, fear, respect, and surrender. So I come up with a definition. I hope you find it helpful. Uh, I'm sure it's not perfect, but can we say it together? Uh, To put it simply, quote, together, the fear of the Lord means to recognize the greatness of God and to surrender to him. Yeah, to recognize the greatness of God and to surrender to him. That's what I think the scripture is telling us in these references throughout the Bible. So let's talk about uh, the greatness of God, this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God, ever-present. And uh, it's the reason many of us are here today, because we, we love God, he's loved us, and we want to, to know him and worship him. Uh, so talk about the Lord's greatness. My wife and I, when I retired because of health reasons back in 2017, uh, our church gave us a trip to Greece. So Santorini, the slide doesn't do it justice, but it's one of the most beautiful places in the world to go. I've been to Hawaii a few times, and Santorini is lovely. It's the Lord's place. He's got many of them, the whole earth. <laughs> this is one of them, though, that stands out. And uh, that's looking over the, uh, this is a serenity pool there in the foreground, and looking over the volcano into the Aegean Sea, and down in the little tip there, it's a six-mile walk from where the photo was taken, down to that tip on the right corner. Everybody goes, there's a little town down there, and uh, they're all there snapping pictures of the sunset. We just sat on the, uh, in our hotel little place and saw it. So this is, uh, I think it's a sequoia, but I remember when I uh, was choosing seminaries way back in the 70s, and we were driving around, six of us, in a car, and we were visiting seminaries. I think we went to Regent College in Vancouver and uh, Fuller, maybe, and I don't know if we went to Trinity and some other places. But we were coming down, down, I guess it was through Oregon, coming out of Canada. We stopped the redwood forest, and these trees were massive. I don't know, how many of you have been there? Anyone? They're, they're pretty massive. So we, we just, and I'm one of the smaller guys in this six guys. We had six guys crammed into a, a small Camaro, but uh, and I'm, like I say, one of the smaller ones. We got next to one of these trees, and we tried to get our fingertip to fingertip around it. It's like, that's impossible. It's like, there's no way we're going to do it. They have cars, the automobiles driving right through these trees that have been hollowed out. So these are a little, and this is only one tree. Here we got the Grand Canyon. My wife says, is that the Grand Canyon? I said, I don't know. It said on the photo I got offline. 
but I know this one is. I know this one is. So when we were driving, look, going to seminaries, we were, uh, we were somehow we came down the lower way back to the northeast and the lower route. We got down into Arizona. We were going to see the Grand Canyon and kept seeing signs and said, Grand Canyon this way, eight miles. The Grand Canyon is five miles, four miles. Finally, so Grand Canyon, like a half a mile. I'm thinking, where is the Grand Canyon? I don't see it. Not realizing, not thinking, it's a hole in the ground. <laughs> you got to get out on the edge of this mountain up here, then you can see, whoa, now I know where it is. Now I know where it is. I'm getting dizzy looking down over. Pretty awesome, really. This is, we're talking about what it means to fear the Lord. It's beginning to recognize the immensity of our God. And this is just a tiny hole. <laughs> you know, it just takes a little tiny little space, but it's so awesome. Uh, a little speck if you look at it from a, a telescope from up above or something. Then we got the ocean. What can we say about it? I think they just added another ocean, didn't they, when they're counting them? I think they, a body of water, there used to be, I thought, seven or something, but now there's might be eight. You can correct me on that. Uh, or you can edit this out if you're recording this later on. But you get the idea. So it's beautiful. So some of us went to the beach recently, our families. Uh, uh, we have a number of sons and their families and wonderful daughter-in-laws and great-grandchildren. So we're down there playing in, in the ocean in Ocean City. And a two-year-old, we just celebrated her birthday, seven grandchildren. She's the youngest. Celebrated her birthday yesterday. A lot of us got together carefully, and um, she was having a great time until, this is not her by the way, but <laughs> until one of those waves came in, whoa, the ocean's a pretty place, but you know, you better not get too close, especially when one of those waves comes washing in. You better have an awesome respect, a wonderful appreciation that's very bit cautious if you're going to approach something so massive. It could be quite disruptive in your life. Having almost drowned three times, I know <laughs> I have a respect. You don't see me out there swimming around very much. I stay in shallow places these days. And then this, uh, you know, you don't have to go far to, to encounter the greatness of God. And this is my next door neighbor's tree. She didn't realize how magnificent it was until I took a picture on a sunny, beautiful day and I got under that tree and shot straight up with my little, little uh, camera from my phone. They get pretty powerful cameras these days. But um, it's just a beautiful expression of the God uh, that we, some of us already know and uh, we need to stay in touch with that God because he is so great. There's a uh, breathtaking uh, lily. I think it's a fire, fire lily or a flame lily, I think they call it. And then you just might be working out in the garden or in the trees in your yard and you begin a little glimpse and, you're, and you say, whoa, that's pretty awesome, this little family of uh, ladybugs. I mean, these are God's ladybugs. He puts little families of all kind of creatures all around you. And it's just somehow, you know, when you're like 
six, about uh, one year old or two or three, and you're in preschool, you're all excited when you see this, right? It's so wonderful. And then we get older, and ah, just some ladybugs down there. To, yeah, just a couple little creatures crawling around. And so we lose connection in, uh, in our minds with, like, these are, these are God's creation. They just didn't happen. They're just not suddenly, oh, there, there's some bugs just appeared in the ground there. And upon recognizing God's greatness, as we get into touch with that, however, whether you're looking at a tree or the Grand Canyon, or you're looking at just the, the smallest of blessings in life, but as you think about this awesome God of ours, maybe looking out into the universe, let's think it's a Hubble picture from the Hubble telescope. You have two choices. It occurred to me we got two choices. We can confess the situation that God is great and we're small. God's perfect, we're imperfect. And the word confess simply means tell it like it is. Lord, you're awesome, you're great, I'm tiny, I got issues. I'm not going to, or we can try to hide them. We can try to hide the reality of our smallness and his greatness so we don't have to deal with a big God. And how do we do it? How do we hide our issues? Well, we can make God, try to make God smaller. I told my 85-year-old friend this yesterday, she said, good luck with that one. <laughs> good luck with God. He's like, oh, he won't notice this, you know. Or we can try to make ourselves bigger. Lord, I, I'm a little bit small, but, you know, I, I'll be okay. I don't, I don't really need you. I can, you know, I, I've done pretty good in life. I can handle it, and especially when I leave this world. I'll be, I might be all right. Uh, you know, when we hide, we may be hoping to escape God's judgment. Maybe we're hoping that there is no accountability in the final day final day. Hoping that somewhere we don't actually have to meet God face to face, so to speak. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we've done on this earth. Good or bad, here we are. He sees it now, it's just later on, he's just going to say, okay, now tell me about that, you know. How'd you do there? How was that? And what do you think I should... I don't know how that's all going to come down, but I'm not too excited about having to give an account unless I got a little protection, unless I got someone on my side. You know, you know when I was... Uh, and that's supposed to be blank. My memory's a little uh, cloudy sometimes, and I'm not sure this is 100% accurate, but you'll get the idea. I must have been about five or six years old and uh, my mother called me one day from another room, and she says, Danny, come in here. So I went in, and she says, uh, did you uh, write on the bedroom wall? Uh, yeah, yeah, there's some uh, crayon. She says, there's some crayons writing on the wall. Was that you? Uh, no, it wasn't me. I, I didn't write on the wall. She says, 
Okay, then answer this question for me. Just, why does the crayon say the word Danny? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, we can try to can hide or we can just confess. Lord, I wrote on the wall. Lord, you caught me. Lord, you never really didn't. God actually doesn't catch anybody. He sees you in the act. It's no surprises to him. That's why it's better, it's better if we just live transparently before God. And if we do something wrong, adjust it, confess it, and just say, God, have mercy on me today so I can move on. I don't have to feel bad about myself or live a second life or uh, you know, a skeleton in the closet or do something on the side. That's a waste of time. How do we try to hide? We, like I say, we try, to, we try to make ourselves bigger. We make ourselves, uh, make God smaller. I got a list of things here. I'm not going to read them, but if you want them later on, it's about six or seven ways uh, we can make ourselves bigger or God smaller. Sadly, some foolhardy human beings try to explain God away. They act and speak as if God doesn't even exist. Prove to me there's a God. You know, they want data. They want research. They want evidence that there's a God. I just simply say, open your, your eyes. <laughs> open the daggone eyes. Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. We're out excuse, without excuse when we ignore God or try to just say, oh, you know, explain him away. Sadly, sadly, some people have lost touch with the reality of God that he's real because you've been injured. Maybe some tragedy has happened in your life. Maybe someone in the name of religion actually did something horrible that has impacted you in a negative way. So it's hard for you to find God. It's hard for you to see him. But let me tell you, friends, he's quite real. And he has an incredible love and concern for us. If we would just seek him out. You know, Hebrews 11.6 says, uh, without faith, it's impossible for us to please God. And whoever wants to connect with God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. He's around. You may have been injured, but you know, he noticed who injured you, and he notices that if you're hurting, that he sees it, and he wants to enter into your pain and, and help you to heal the brokenness that's there. In seminary class, I had a professor, Professor Knutson. He would often say this, and the whole class was about this subject. It's about the existence of God. He'd say, the question is not, does God exist? The question is, what have you done with him? What have you done with him? Where have you put him? How have you explained him away? God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. To whom can we compare God? We're talking about the fear of the Lord, this our creator and sustainer. To whom can you compare God? Who 
Can you make my equal? I think it's a little typo up there. but Who can you make my equal that we may be alike? Isaiah 46.5. My wife and I started talking about it last night just briefly, or maybe the other a couple nights ago or something. And we were trying to think about who is it to, who are the people that are admired in the world? So I said, oh, you know, we get Oprah. I said, well, some people don't like her, but she's liked a lot. We get Elon Musk for his innovations and Tom Hanks, who seems to be everybody likes him for the most part. I'm sure somebody's jealous, though, and says, no, I don't like that guy. But Billy Graham, you got a long history. Uh, that's just the recent people. History of George Washington, admired, Napoleon, Abraham Lincoln, Isaac Newton, you know, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, uh, on and on. We got entertainers, actors, politicians, sports figures, humanitarians, Olympic gold medalists, et cetera, et cetera. And as we're thinking about this, we just wasted about 15 minutes of our time trying to come up with somebody <laughs> who could even come close in comparison for the admiration for, for what they've, oh, that, what did they do? Oh, they ran 100 meters in 9.3 seconds. Yeah, okay, so what? You know, can you ever measure the speed of light? 176,000 miles per second. It goes around the world so many times in a split second, it's like it makes you dizzy. To whom will you compare me? And so there's a call, you know, as we think, what does it mean to walk in the fear of the Lord? It means to recognize his greatness, and the rest of the definition was, and to surrender to him. To surrender your life to him. Say, Lord, what do you want from me? What can I do? I've fallen short. I need help. I need mercy. I don't have a lot to offer, but everything I have is a gift from you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. You know, we don't want to be like the scribes and Pharisees, do we? The scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, we can talk a lot of religious terms, but if our hearts aren't surrendered, why are we even here? What are we, we're wasting our time just even discussing about anything. You might as well just, as Paul says, eat, drink, and be merry, and have just admit that you just, it's all a pretense. And all of us have a little bit of that in us, but hopefully we'll have less and less that we want to be believers, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. But that involves surrender. The Lord loves a person with a tender heart toward him, a realist who admits that we don't have much to offer apart from him. and Everything we have is from him. Uh-oh, go back here. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He will, and he has, and he will continue to. Somebody once said, and I think rightly, that no life is more secure than a life that's surrendered to God. No life is more secure than a life surrendered to God. You know, I think about the great king of the universe. He's made you. He's made me. He's given you life. He's given you breath. He's given you family. He's given you friends. 
These are gifts from God. And sometimes the gifts come in just a touch of love from your friend's hand. It's another gift from God, not just in the creature, uh, creation. And uh, an act of kindness. Something like many of you know that back in 2005, one of the most profound ways in which God showed me his greatness was when my friend gave me his kidney. I had a kidney transplant. I was virtually in a bad, bad way. And my friend just showed me how great God was and when he did this great act for me. So I, that's why I come here today, here today because I've seen the, the love of God in, in this friend of mine. But you know, the Lord has given you so much Friends, breath, family, friends, for me, a kidney. But I think the greatest thing he's ever given was he'd given us himself. He's given us himself. That's pretty awesome. That the God of the universe would become human so that he would live a perfect life, that you might have his perfect life record. He'd become human so that he might take the judgment that you and I deserve on the cross. In nature, we can see the greatness of God. We can see the greatness of God's power. But in the incarnation, God becoming flesh, human, we see the greatness of God's love. And I pray that you're able to connect with that, the greatness of God's love. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for what we've done wrong. And by his wounds, we find our healing. And so in conclusion, Pastor Dan, what are we to do? What do you want us to do? What does the scripture call us to do? As we walk out the doors. It's not too complicated. Be gripped by the greatness of God and surrender your heart. Be gripped by the greatness of God. Every day, it's... it's we wake up and we go about a routine, but and it's, hard, it's easy for us to forget how kind, how gracious, how wonderful God has been, this awesome God, and how nice and kind he's been to us. And I'm, So I say that try to get in touch every day with how great God is. Live a life that shows you respect God, that God a life that honors God, a life that adjusts itself to reflect uh, the glory of God in your life, a life of gratitude and appreciation. But you've got to get in touch with God's greatness to do that. And when you realize how privileged you are each day, then just surrender your heart and say, Lord, here I am. I'm your servant. You've given me everything. I've got nothing but everything I have is from you. What do you want me to do? Here I am. Let me serve you. That, my friends, is wisdom. That, my friends, is the fear of the Lord. And that's the beginning of wisdom. And with that kind of awareness that God uh, is great and he deserves a great surrender, uh, with God that will never go out of style. Amen. Father, we bow before you. We pray that you'd help us, like the early Christians, to walk in the fear of you, the Lord, the creator of the universe, the only God, that you give us grace uh, to appreciate uh, 
how wonderful you've been to us and help us to, uh, to live a life that has a surrendered heart that is worthy of identifying with you, our creator, you, our sustainer, uh, you, our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.